Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 125 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. Hope your holiday weekend was a good one. I'm live from Kansas City in Patterson, North Carolina. We're grateful for a horn of plenty of cases to choose from and have three today, and we have enough for probably next Sunday as well, even if no cases are argued this coming week. Our first case today is Midwest Commercial Funding LLC versus Kelly from the Illinois Supreme Court. Our second case today is from Indiana Pellet, Illinois Casualty Company versus Jessica Perciaga et al. Our third case today is from the Illinois Supreme Court as well, Dunover versus Clark Material Handling Company. With that, let's turn to our first case. Does a competing judgment creditor have standing to challenge service of process by email where the citation respondent consents to jurisdiction appears voluntarily? Is the issue of improper service waived when it was not raised until the motion to reconsider? Those are among the issues that will be addressed when the Illinois Supreme Court decides Midwest commercial funding versus Williams. Two creditors of the convicted sex offender uh, served citations on Sony Music seeking recovery. Williams issued its citation by certified mail on August 17, 2020, and Midwest commercial emailed Sony and sent the citation by regular email or regular mail. Sony appeared on August 24th and responded to Midwest commercial's citation. The circuit court held that Midwest commercial citation was first in time and thus had priority, but the appellate court reversed, finding that service by email was not proper. In response, Midwest commercial contends that Williams has no standing to challenge the waiver of service by Sony and cites two Supreme Court cases for that proposition, People v. Matthews, 2016, IL-118-114, and Henry M.W., 232, Bill 2nd, 408-2009. Williams responds that she is not challenging the service, but rather the priority of creditor, and for that she has standing. A case may come down to the interaction between Supreme Court Rules 11, 12, and 105, which governs service of prop process and notice generally, and 735 LCS 5-2-1402, which governs post-judgment civil proceedings. Both parties stood on the PLA briefings, for their briefs before the court. Pat, tell us about oral argument in this case. So I want to start with where you ended, Dan, um, and that's on the, the briefing. I, I My column next week is on these, there were four arguments that the Supreme Court heard on Tuesday before Thanksgiving, somewhat unusual, considering the holiday, making people show up then, but that's what they did. These were all in person, um, and the the, uh, I went to go try to learn some more about the cases and pulled up the PLA, brief, you know, PLA briefing, which is all posted on the Supreme Court's website. And they both stood on their, on their PLAs, and I'm not sure how to find the PLAs. Maybe they're out there. I didn't yeah. see them. Uh, I can't say I looked very hard, but there they are. So it's a bit unusual. You can do that. Uh, but it's because the issues are different. PLA, you're saying, hey, you should take my case, or no, you shouldn't take the case. And the briefing is, okay, you've taken the case, now what? This isn't like in Indiana where the first issue might be, should you take the case? Because uh, they kind of roll that all into one. 
so the, this is this case is not unfamiliar to listeners of this show as we've talked about this saga before. Um, this, if you remember, we had Williams versus Kelly, where Kelly, that's R. Kelly, the singer, uh, sought to vacate the four million dollar judgment that was entered against him just before the pandemic. So like a week before March, so like March 10th, I think, or something like that, they get the judgment. And the they then don't do anything with it. Um, they're, they, didn't, they then don't do anything until August. And that was actually brought up in the argument. So I called that these guys sat on their, they sat around, they didn't do anything. They could have issued the citation. They didn't. They waited till August. And counsel for Williams is like, well, Nothing was going to happen. We're in the middle of the pandemic. We didn't, you know, we weren't going to be able to advance the case, yada, yada. Okay, maybe. But a citation to discover assets is, the, in this case, you'll note it was Sony. So they have royalties that are being paid to R. Kelly for songs that he recorded. Um, and Williams has a judgment for $4 million. We know that. I don't know how big this Midwest commercials judgment is for. Maybe bigger, maybe small. I, I don't know. But it's, it's that. And they apparently have had other dealings with Sony before. So they email their citation to discover assets to somebody at Sony, whereas Williams, not having had such a relationship, sends off the regular certified mail to tag Sony and bring them into the case because the citation responded as a stranger to the case. you got to bring them in. you got to serve them. And these proceedings, as Dan said, are governed by Section 2-1402 of the Code of Civil Procedure. There's also service of process and notice provisions in Rule 11, 12, and 105. 11 generally deals with the service, and 12 deals with once people are already in the case and how you give notice of things, and that's where email comes up. And so the question is whether email's even proper. But before you get to that, you get to the question of, can Williams even raise this argument, and did they raise the argument? So this forfeiture argument is out there. Uh, they didn't raise it to a motion to reconsider, and the appellate court said, yeah, there was forfeiture, but we have the ability to look past that if we want to. It's a limitation on the parties, not on the court. So we're going to we're gonna uh, disregard that. We're going to judge it on the merits. The Supreme Court could come to a different judgment. They could say, you know what, this is all waived, go home. But I have a hard time believing they took the case in order to say that the plaintiff forfeited the case, forfeited the issue. That is the central issue in the case, namely that... Um, namely that there was email service and then Sony comes into the case. One of the arguments that the uh, that Williams makes is, well, they not only sent it by email, they also sent it by mail. They knew that the email was no good. The mail showed up after our certified mail was received. They know that you know, we're the ones that were first in time. We get priority. And oh, by the way, the standing argument, that doesn't fly because we actually, this is different than saying there was no service. This is saying, I've actually, my, their rights, Williams's rights are materially affected because of the, the issue is priority. Who gets who gets the money first? Um, I, I have to think, based upon how hard they're fighting, that the amount of the royalties that are being received aren't enough to pay either judgment, and thus the other one's not going to get anything. And so priority really matters. Um, that's my impression. Um, I, that may not be true. Maybe R. Kelly has a lot of royalties that are or maybe Sony is holding that money. Um, and maybe there's a pot of money Sony is holding and not distributing to him based upon his, his myriad legal troubles. I don't know. Also, 
I imagine that Kelly has numerous creditors and that these are not the only ones that are chasing after him, including his lawyers. So um, he's had many lawyers over the years representing him in courts all over the country. Criminal and civil. All of the issues, criminal and civil, uh, rising out of his, uh, his bad behavior. But musical artists are involved in all kinds of other litigation related to their business, putting aside his, uh, his, his personal conduct. Uh, so a very interesting case from the perspective of you know, something fundamental like this. You know, usually we don't talk about citations to discover assets, and very seldom does a case like this reach the Supreme Court. But based upon the fundamental issue that's at stake and the high-profile nature of who the one of the who, whose money we're talking about, I mean Kelly's a bystander in this case at this point. His judgment, the judgment against him, at least with regards to Williams, was denied. I imagine they'll file a petition for leave to appeal, but I can't imagine that'll be successful. Um, if that petition will be granted, um, he, he doesn't make for the most sympathetic person uh, based upon uh, based upon his conduct. So I have a hard time believing that. The judgment's going to go away in that way. So they've they took this case in order to do something with it. I don't think they're going to do anything with forfeiture, uh, but it's a very interesting issue. Uh, Dan, what are your thoughts? Yeah, and I agree with you on a couple of things. One is, as you mentioned, Mark Kelly probably also has cases. A lot of these songwriters and performing artists have disputes about the writing credits, about royalties with family and friends and former uh, accompanying musicians and all kinds of stuff recording studio licenses you know you name it so like, contract disputes over venues and, yeah. and performances and all yeah they have nothing to do with bad behavior or anything else so that's one the other thing before before we started we were talking about is at the Supreme Court well maybe bad behavior but just a different yeah right kind of bad right behavior. yeah right yeah <laughs> different and not necessarily by right Kelly. right that's very possible management fees all kinds of stuff the other interesting thing here uh, we talked about before we started the show is that, is that as you mentioned, the Illinois Supreme Court heard four cases last Tuesday before Thanksgiving. Uh, Joy Cunningham, her investiture is Thursday, I believe, December 1st. Um, so she's taken over for the retiring uh, Chief Justice or former Chief Justice uh, Burke. Uh, there's there's also That's Ann Burke. Burke. Not Michael. Not Michael. He's being retired. He's being retired by his own right, choice. We'll right. get to that. And so you've got that taking place as well. And so it's an interesting time because uh, the court's going to be five-two. Uh, the Democrats in charge. So there's three, three changeovers. I think right this election. Yeah, two, two that won elections, and then uh, Joy Cunningham, uh, Justice Cunningham. Um, so you, you've got a, and she'll be up for retention in two years. Two years, I think. I think that's the remaining okay. time on Justice uh, Ann Burke's timing. I think it's two years. It may be four. Um, so it'll be interesting because, uh, you know, I don't know if, if this current bench, I would imagine, would write the opinion, right, the ones that heard it, not somebody that's stepping in next week or whenever the rest. Do, do you know when the other two, is, is there a date also this week? I don't really know. I don't know when they when they come in. I don't know if it's not till after the first one. It might be. Um, I, I don't know, but it certainly is the case that Carter Burke, um, that's Michael Burke, heard heard this right. case. Carter Carter didn't stand for re-election, but uh, his seat it was up. It was an open seat basically. Yeah. Burke ran for retention. 
lost, um, he had been appointed to fill out, uh, he had been appointed and then was going to stand. So I, the people who heard the case are the ones who were going to decide right. the case, which is probably part of the reason why they had to have this set of arguments, because they had done the briefing while these people were sitting. Otherwise, these people, these people being the litigants, would have to wait much longer for their, um, their cases to be decided, which wouldn't be very fair. And it would back up the court's docket. Yeah. So it's a bit of speculation by us as to what they're doing here, but I have to think it's – otherwise they'd have a backlog and a real problem and a delay to litigants and, and the court would uh, – and a, and a even greater caseload than they're already going to have with these new justices coming on the court and have, have three new justices. Um, it's a lot of turnover. It is. Uh, for a seven justice court. and and you know it's uh, uh, like you said I don't I don't think the court would have would have granted leave if, if it's just to say you're out of luck so it'll be interesting to see what they do with this case because if they find forfeiture of the case is over, right <laughs> it's done because <laughs> uh, that was where they raised the issue that really is the central part of the plaintiff's case so all right so with that we'll take our first break and come back with. Illinois Casualty versus Bursiaga. We're back for segment two of episode 125 of the Podium and Panel podcast. And is it proper to order the entirety of an insurance coverage dispute involving nearly three dozen plaintiffs to arbitration when some of the applicable policies do not include the arbitration clause? That is the central question to be answered when the Indiana Court of Appeals decides Illinois casualty versus Bursiaga. The oral argument uh, I watched at the Illinois Defense Council of Indiana uh, annual meeting in Michigan City was a part of the Indiana Appellate Court's Appeals on Wheels program. Uh, the court described the case this way. 33 professional models claim that two strip clubs used the models' photographs in their advertisements, that the insured clubs posted those advertisements on their social media accounts between December 14th and October 2020. The models filed a complaint against the insured clubs in federal court and alleged the insured clubs improperly used the models' images in violation of the Lanham Act, in violation of the Indian Right of Privacy Statute, and the actions constituted unjust enrichment. Illinois Casualty insured the clubs and denied the policies at issue, provided coverage for the models' claims. The insured clubs and the models entered into consent judgment, the insured clubs assigned any claims against Illinois Casualty to the models. Illinois Casualty filed a complaint for declaratory judgment, and the models filed a motion to compel arbitration. The models contend that Illinois Casualty's policies with the insured clubs contain an arbitration provision, and that the models are thus untitled to arbitration to the assigned claims. Illinois Casualty argues in part that the policies contain an anti-assignment provision and a provision barring consent judgments. Trial court granted the model's motion to compel arbitration and Illinois Casualty appealed. In addition to challenging the order compelling arbitration, Illinois Casualty is also contending that the consent judgments are invalid. The consent judgment is invalid because it did not have the opportunity to defend the underlying suit after it denied coverage for the first iteration of the underlying suit, which it contends did not bring the claims within coverage. The coverage form in question is a claims made form that's within a in an occurrence-based policy and the original complaint alleged no dates of the alleged improper publication. The dates were added to later versions of the, of the complaint, but those were not provided to the insurer. The defendants dispute all of that. There are also issues related to some of the policies not having the coverage form, and whether this conduct is covered under the insuring agreement 
and who decides the scope of the arbitration for the policies that do not have coverage for Oh my goodness, there are many issues. Dan, tell us about the case. Sure, Pat. And as you mentioned, this was Appeals on Wheels. I think it's the coolest thing that uh, Indiana does, the Court of Appeals. Uh, you know, there's not really a, an equivalent in Illinois. Part of it's we've got different appellate courts, but, you know, the Supreme Court sometimes does cases outside of Springfield, but Again, I, I think it's a cool feature that they go around to the state that gives access. They go around, they do them, and uh, they they have a, they also have a question period after the right. argument, and they don't broadcast that or record it. But the justices come out from behind the bench, and the formality is relaxed, and they get asked, "You know, where else do you do this?" And what well, we do them in elementary schools, and we do them in colleges and law schools. But we really like the questions from the elementary school. Uh, they, <laughs> they 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 always ask great questions. Then they do them in front of elementary students. But a lot of law schools and bar yeah. groups. Um, it's it's really an opportunity also for you know lawyers to interact with the uh, with the justices um, and ask real questions yeah. and not get answers, right. but to ask them nonetheless. Yeah, and at the end of the hearing, you could hear hear the uh, justice, the presiding justice, say that she's going to come out from behind the bench, take their robes off, and answer questions, and it's not being recorded. So that's great. And you know, I do lawyers in the classroom. I've done it for years, and. Kids' questions are amazing. You know, sometimes they ask you what you make and stuff, but a lot of their questions are, yeah. they really, you know, per, per, pretty interesting that the types of questions that even kids in second grade will ask you. It's pretty, pretty, pretty cool. So, as Pat said, a lot of issues in this case. Uh, the uh, Pat mentioned that there were several policies, so let, let's start with that. There were 10 policies here. The first four did not have this cyber endorsement. Uh, that also impacted and excluded uh, things under the advertising injury provision of the of the policies. So there's 10 policies for, for these 10 years. Um, as Pat said, these models are challenging the fact that the pictures were used. I mean, I don't know what the contracts they signed, but you know, when you uh, do a lot of things and work at these types of places, you probably sign some kind of release of your likeness and stuff. I mean, I can't imagine. No. They don't. No, no. This is these are models. These pictures are being used for models in some cases that never worked. Okay. Okay. So one of the first of these cases that was brought was brought by Carmen Electra. Okay. And she and she appeared at a strip club. Ladies that never worked at the club, they never worked at the club, and they would use it. This is some of the allegations. Okay. Some of them. It's different for different ones. Okay. They're just they're using pictures of to try to. That's the allegation. Okay. Okay. Because I was under the impression, like, you know, Admiral's Club or other, these the strip clubs, they feature, you know, so-and-so came to here last night. And I would imagine in those cases that they probably signed some things away. But that, that's helpful, Pat. The, uh, the, there are 33 plaintiffs in this, in this case. Um, part of the oral argument and discussion is, is uh, the models, uh, as Pat said, were assigned these, two poli- these policies and the rights by these two uh, clubs, the uh, the justices and 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 the advocates were both talking about the, of these thirty three models. There's a couple that uh, their their images weren't used in any of that period, so th- there's that. Uh, there's only the arbitration in the in the special cyber uh, endorsement for coverage, um, and that limits it limits damages to fifty thousand dollars. I believe was the number, very small number. Uh, and that's eroding. And it's eroding. It's eroding, including defense. So, you you know, um, doesn't take long as, as anybody who's who's uh, defended or 
or pursued claims to, to know that $50,000 is when it erodes. If, Especially in a trademark claim. Trademark claim here. Or Lanham right? Act claim. Lanham Act cases, very complex cases. Uh, so the, 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 um, the, the argument of the models is, is that because these six policies have an arbitration provision in the cyber coverage provision, it's the only place, it says any dispute relating to the policy should go to arbitration. Uh, I think it, it would be an understatement to say that a few of the justices were not impressed with that. They're saying, really? Like, okay, the one justice used the example, you have two uh, insureds for an auto policy. Uh, the guy's insured for the one, gets in an accident, then another accident when he's not insured anymore. Those two plaintiffs file the same action against the insurance company. He said, you're telling me that both of those then are subject to arbitration provision? Uh, and uh, the, 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 the argument, uh, uh, you know, just, just like duty to defend and all these arguments that we talk about in the show, the argument here is that in for one, in for all. So if, if any of these claims are subject to arbitration, all, all 33 models, all 10 policies can be subject to arbit arbitration. And that, according to the models, the person that determines the jurisdiction would be the arbitration panel of the AAA. This is under AAA rules. That's, that's the arbitration provision that's in these uh, endorsements. Um, and again, I, it, it's a bit of, uh, as I, you listen to this argument and you, you read the uh, description of the case, um, it's a bit of a, of a stretch, in my opinion, to somehow say that all these things can be subject to arbitration. Uh, and the, the arbitrator can decide some of the stuff, but uh, under Indiana law, uh, the question is, uh, it's, it's a question for the trial, trier of fact, the, the, the judge to determine uh, what what is subject to the arbitration. So I think it's a, it, 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 it's, it's a bit of a, uh, uh, an interesting case. Um, the uh, uh, Pat mentioned that there was some some dispute about uh, the the original complaint uh, that it did not uh, talk about dates and other things. Uh, there were two iterations, I believe, of the uh, two amended complaints, three three amended complaints, and. Uh, or the three total, three, three three total. total complaints, the original and then two amended, right? Yeah, yeah, and again, Elna casually got the first one. Uh, they looked at it, and based on uh, the allegations in that complaint, uh, they didn't specify dates, they didn't specify how, how this all took place. Uh, they denied coverage, and then there's dispute about whether or not they did receive the first amended and second amended complaint. Um, and, and, and even if they did, there's still uh, the argument of the counsel for the Illinois casualty was that uh, even if we did receive them and even if we did have them, there's still no coverage here. And, and again, the, the, the question that's got to be decided here is are all these claims by the 33 models, some of which are not within a 10-year period, some of which are in the four policies before uh, the endorsement that's subjected it to arbitration, whether uh, you know this class uh, can be uh, subject to arbitration, and you know one of the under undertoes of this, not really discussed extensively, but uh, mo most uh, insurance policies in a lot of these cases 
uh, that, that are subject to arbitration, if they are subject to arbitration, very hard to get classes of, of plaintiffs in arbitration because the way that the arbitration provisions are set up and insurance policies and other contracts is that oftentimes you can't even have a class of, of members. Um, so uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the appellant was asked about, uh, you know, how, how, how do uh, the, the justices resolve factual matters and, and the responses we're not asking them to do that. Uh, really, what, what's at issue here is, is the initial step. It's a procedural issue of, again, whether the assignment was valid and whether, in fact, these claims are subject to uh, the arbitration provisions. The, um, uh, the, the other thing Pat mentioned, and again, it's not, not atypical, uh, but this endorsement is a claims made. Uh, cyber is often claims made, and so this is a cyber endorsement that's that, that's sliced in. Um, it's claims made under an occurrence policy, and so again, there's a question of whether or not, uh, you know, with claims made, uh, timely notice and stuff. But you don't even get there until you start sorting through some of the procedural issues here. So an interesting case, I think that. Uh, uh, It'll be interesting to see what the Indiana Appellate Court does. Uh, so it will be. I, I couldn't. The argument was that the justices were somewhat inscrutable on many they were. issues. And they they really were struggling. So with that, we'll take our our next break and come back with Dunover versus Clark. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to segment three of episode 123 of the Podium and Panel podcast. And the questions to be raised in this case are, can a scheme to defraud a seller of goods be inferred from the continued request for goods to state a claim for promissory fraud under Illinois law? Or is this simply a breach of contract claim subject to arbitration? Is the buyer of the business making the request for goods in an article nine sale liable for this conduct? Those are the some of the questions to be addressed when the Illinois Appellate Court Second District decides Butler Brothers Supply Division LLC versus HN Precision Company. The plaintiff sued the defendant business and some of its officers for fraud when, despite being in financial trouble and in negotiations for a foreclosure, foreclosure sale that would have left the plaintiff with nothing, continued to request goods and never advised the plaintiff of the planned sale. The circuit court dismissed the case and ordered the matter to arbitration pursuant to the party's contract, and the plaintiff appealed, principally relying on HPI Healthcare Services, Inc. versus Mount Vernon, Vernon Hospital, Inc., 131 L. 2nd, 145 from 1989. The defendants asserted that no such representations were made and no inference of a scheme can be drawn from the allegations to the complaint. Pat, tell us about oral argument. Thanks, Dan. Uh, I'm going to start where the court started with, is there jurisdiction? Uh, so the order that was entered in this case dismissed 
the claims without prejudice, the fraud claims, and then sent the whole case to, no, it dismissed those claims with prejudice, and then it sent the whole case to arbitration. It didn't actually dismiss the contract claim because a contract claim wasn't pled, but it sent the case to arbitration because there was an arbitration clause in the contract and the court said, this is just a contract dispute. Go make your claims there. Um, the court wondered whether it had appellate jurisdiction because there was no 304A finding, which is the Illinois equivalent of 54B. I, I'm not sure if there's jurisdiction. I think there's a question. Um, we'll see what the appellate court does on that, but just to flag that issue up is we may see that in the opinion, either finding it just may get rid of the whole case and just send it back and tell them to figure it out. Um, in terms of what was done here, it seems that the, uh, this was a private equity firm that was going to buy this distressed business on a, on a foreclosure and article nine sale. And that essentially all the prior creditors were going to be, uh, SOL and, there was a lot of discussion, I think principally extra record because we're at the pleading stage, about what should have been done and how this would have been handled by plaintiff's counsel if he was handling it. And, you know, you've got to make sure these people get paid and you can't tell them. And the question really comes down to when you keep ordering goods or services, are you, is that a promise to pay? Sure, seems like one to me. If I ask you to if I ask you to deliver something or to do a service for me, and we have a contract that says you're going to pay me for those things, it would seem that you're going to pay, you're agreeing to pay, pay me for those things, else you wouldn't be ordering them. Uh, and that's not what happened. Uh, these, the, the, uh, the plaintiff here was left with nothing. And so they sued not only the business with whom they contracted and the, and the employees, but also the private equity firm saying that they were in on the scheme and they took in that they, they are liable too. So there was two sets of advocates here. Um, very, very interesting um, to see because you can see some real shenanigans occurring. Um, the, the concern was, I mean, the relationship between the plaintiff and the defendant was so close that employee, at least one employee of the plaintiff was on the manufacturing floor of the defendant's business so that he could properly coordinate the things that they needed in order to do their business, because the value of the business would be so far diminished, at least this is the claim, if their production shut down by not having the products from the plaintiff. And it would not be a going concern. You know, obviously, the value of a going concern is a lot more than a value of a shutdown concern. So they wanted to keep the concern going up to the time of sale so that they're buying a going concern. They don't need to restart everything. You shut down machines, you slow down production, you lay people off, hard to, you know, makes it a lot more expensive to, to run the business. So, uh, or to make the transfer. So this apparently, this negotiation had been going on for quite a while and they knew that they were continuing. The allegation is that they knew that they were continuing to order these products with no intent to pay. There were some distinctions that were tried to be drawn by the plaintiff, by the defendants with this HPI case that there weren't actually any misrepresentations made. That isn't what's pled. But when in fact, what it, the, the allegation is, well, if you can infer it from you ordered goods, what, what were you planning on doing? Uh, it's a reasonable inference. 
because we're at the pleading stage, that you're going to pay for. So uh, an interesting case and and one that uh, is important because you can't go around. It seems that if the allegations are true, that these people uh, did a, did an audit mm-hmm. and, and shouldn't do that. And um, But I don't know if it's true. That's just what's alleged. It seems that that should get past pleading to me. But we'll, we'll see. It seemed that the district court, the trial court rather, just completely ignored this line of case law. At least that was the argument of plaintiff's counsel, is that he just wouldn't acknowledge that this tort existed and basically said, go, this is a contract claim. You didn't plead it. You've got a contract. You've got to go arbitrate it. Go arbitrate it. Leave me alone. Um, I'm not sure that's the law. This is a narrow a narrow rule, but it seems to be the rule in Illinois. Dan, anything to add on, the, on that case? No, I, think, I think you summarized it well, and it'll be an interesting case to see what happens here. Indeed. That brings us to uh, business interruption for COVID cases. Not much doing no, this week. Quiet. Um, which brings us to our prediction, sure to go wrong. Dan is 82 and a half, 37 and a half, and 11. I am 81 and a half, 38 and a half, and 11. We had one case get decided this week, Heron versus Iowa Health, that we discussed on episode 101. Uh, we got this one right. Dan, tell us about this case. Sure, that this was a case... Uh, that was trying to compel disclosure of decedent's mental health records. The trial court uh, was found not to err in granting defendant's motion to the com- compel disclosure, uh, but the, the uh, appellate court said that the court failed to perform the required in-camera inspection of the records, so they vacated the contempt finding that was held against the defendants and the accompanying fine imposed against plaintiff. Plaintiff Sarah Heron, as the independent administrator of the state of her husband, Donald Heron, had appealed a discovery order granting defendant's motion to compel disclosure of Donald's mental health records. She refused to disclose those records, and the court held her in contempt. She contended that the records are privileged under the Mental Health and Development Disabilities Confidentiality Act, and so the court affirmed in part and and, uh, vacated in part as modified and returned it back to the court for for the proceedings. So a couple things. First, uh, jurisdiction was achieved by the contempt finding. That's the only way you could get a discovery order of this uh, up to the appellate court. And both sides agreed there was right. no contempt. There was no actually contumacious. So everyone agreed vacated. Great. All right. So now what happens with the records? The records, instead of going to defendants, should go to the, to the judge and she'll decide um, after reviewing them and then give them out if they're if they're appropriate. The other thing was is that there's a there's kind of a divergence in the case law over cases where you've merely alleged neurological sequelae as a result of a uh, head trauma and cases where you're alleging mental anguish in the form in this case this person tried to commit suicide um, and then there was medical malpractice that followed from that when they didn't properly treat him as the claim the uh, so you really have in this case, they pled mental anguish in the complaint, and the court dropped a footnote and said, if you hadn't pled that, we wouldn't be here. Uh, you put it at issue by pleading it, so your goose is cooked. That's an important footnote yeah. to keep in mind if you have these cases uh, on both sides. Right. If you don't want to turn over the mental health records, don't plead mental anguish. Um, I, I think they still might come in in this case for causation, because... Ultimately, this 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 was not, if I remember the oral argument correctly, this was not his first suicide attempt. Uh, this was at least his second. So 
the argument would be, well, eventually he'd be successful. Uh, and that if he's that disturbed, that depressed, that non-responsive to treatment uh, and, and, and drugs and whatnot, then, you know, how much value uh, is there really in this wrongful death case? So uh, an interesting case, an important one in, 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 in dealing with these kinds of documents. For sure. So with that, Dan, that brings us to our prediction sure to go, on or go, on, go wrong for this week. Uh, Howard versus Rebitzer, affirmed. affirmed. Uh, Miller versus Guy, affirmed. affirmed. Uh, Butler Brothers versus HN, reversed. I think it's reversed, yep. Okay. We agree. Outstanding. Yep. Brings us to our rule of the week, Dan. Why don't you tell us about this? You dug this one sure. up, so sure. you're on it. And uh, LinkedIn, I, I believe it came from, which is a, always a rich source of various odds and end rules that we, we find. Uh, occasionally, as you know, we, we cover small and I rules, but we've covered a lot of those in our 123 episodes. So this one is is something that uh, neither of us were very familiar with. I saw a post, as I mentioned, at LinkedIn, I believe, uh, that discussed uh, a debutante opinion, and it, and it had to do with a recent en banc vote in Weary versus Foster. I believe it may have been a Ninth Circuit case. A lot of these uh, rules come from the Ninth Circuit, but it, it, it might not be. I, I didn't look before the show to, to, to uh, confirm that. And it featured a discussion of a, a debutante opinion, D-U-B-I-T-A-N-T-E, uh, filed by a panel member. Uh, the person who posted was unfamiliar with the term, and he learned from Wikipedia that the phrase has a long and distinguished, if somewhat obscure, history in judicial opinions as a way for a judge to note his or her doubts about the rule of decision. And he wrote, I then consulted with my friend Brent McGuire, the pastor of Our Redeemer Lutheran Church in Dallas, who gave me further detail. Quote, and this comes from, I guess, Brent McGuire, debutante would literally mean having doubts or with a wavering mind. It's a singular participle form of the word debuto, debutari, which means to doubt or to waver. But that's E ending, meaning it's the ablative case, which is basically the adverbial case. That is to say, the case the noun or adjective takes when used to describe in some way a verb, adjective, or other adverb. So, in quote, long, long-winded way. That cleared of, it up. Of, uh, yeah, I right? I understand. Of, of Debutante, unlike uh, uh, de- debutante, is 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 a revealing of of doubt about a decision. I don't know why you just don't say, "I have doubts" or "I dissent." I mean, dissents used to be uh, <laughs> the legal term. I I thought for disagree or or not really agreeing with the the majority opinion. But there you go. Learn something new every day. Wow. I heard it was, I always thought the debutante was his first opinion. Apparently not. Uh, apparently it's one to, it's a doubtful it's a doubt, opinion. Doubtful right. opinion. Very good. So there you, there you have it. It right. may have a long history, but neither one of us seen it before. I don't know about our listeners. If you've heard of it, maybe post, uh, uh, respond to, to this episode. I guess, I guess we don't have, I guess justices and judges aren't allowed to vote present. I guess. That really isn't on right. the menu. They got to take a position. Right. And so the person, you know, he can't just say, unless they were accused, you know, or disqualified for some reason. So presumably that, you know, that's not, that, that's not present plainly. So if you're present, you gotta, you can't, you say A or nay. You can't say, <laughs> eh. Um, and although if we, if they did, 
Justice Roberts would Chief Justice Roberts would turn that into a uh, into an he art would. form to say, yeah. eh, I won't <laughs> want to actually make a decision here. Um, so you know, the only thing in the middle of the road are yellow lines and armadillos. Yeah. So that seems to be and debutantes apparently. So yellow lines, <laughs> armadillos, debutantes. Um, so I'm glad they make them make a decision that's at right. least. And you have to say it, even though eh, I'm not so sure. Okay, that's fine. That's fair. I don't actually mean it. <laughs> I'll change my mind later. <laughs> I'm sure the guy who lost is going to feel a lot right. better. Uh, so with that, we'll take our leave. Thank you, everybody, for joining us this week on the Podium and Panel Podcast. We will see you next week. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.